stimulating talk. Is this working? Uh, it seems to me that um, there's a problem in terms of what society expects or permits. Uh, most people in society today sort of say, oh, well, if people want to do uh, same-sex sex, that's up to them, nothing to do with us. Is, has anybody written a book which is sympathetic towards people who find themselves same-sex attracted. Um, uh, yes, right. yeah, yeah, yes, there is, very much so. And one of the reasons why, um, when Andrew asked me at the beginning who would I recommend reading on this, that, that's why I mentioned particularly Preston Sprinkle's book. Because Preston Sprinkle is seeking to do two things. In the middle of the book, the kind of meat of the sandwich, as it were, He's trying to say, let's be honest about what the biblical texts say. Let's be honest about, yes, the detail of the text, and he does explore those, but also the big picture, the big vision that Scripture has. Let's be honest about the teaching of Jesus, which is that marriage is a God's gift in creation between one man and one woman. And let's be honest as well about the failings of the church and of society in that context too. He said, but then he, as it were, the bread round the sandwich, which is actually, in this case, is more important than the meat in some ways, where we get the air together, is he begins and he ends with an exploration of the pastoral challenge. Because here's the really interesting thing, and I think this is the one thing that, that I keep coming back to. When, you know, as we've had debates in the Church of England, somebody, you know, somebody stood up and said, well, I'm same-sex attracted. You know, I, I want to spend my life with this person in a marriage relationship. And you are being unkind to me by saying that, that the teaching of Scripture and the doctrine of the church prohibits that happening. And the question I want to go back to is, for that person, and for me, with all the desires that I know I have of all, all kinds, what does Jesus say to me? What does Jesus say to that person? Now, there's one classic episode in John 8 where Jesus is presented with exactly that case. And on the one hand, he says to the woman... Is there no one here to condemn you? She says, no, sir. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. Now, the challenge for us as a church is, both, is to be faithful, it seems to me, to both those aspects of Jesus' ministry. On the one hand, to be honest and clear about what God has created sex for. On the other hand, also to be able to say, go and sin no more. And I think that's going to demand particular things of us. And I think in some ways, and that's why, that's why, you know, Preston Sprinkle both starts his book there and he ends his book there as well to say this is what churches are going to need to be like. Because there's no doubt that, you know, we are guilty of a history of hostility to gay people. So what would it take for us to be a church where gay people felt welcomed and felt loved and felt accepted? while we still hold on to the teaching of Jesus. That, that, I think that's the, the key challenge, pastoral challenge before us. I, I've got a feeling, but it, but, it, but it also touches on questions of singleness and family and community. So one of the things that Maggie and I do in our house is we intentionally live, and we always have done, in a multi-generational open community. So 
We lived with her parents until her father died, now just with her mother. We also, our, our kids have come and came and go, especially they came to, with us when, um, when COVID was, the lockdowns were enforced, they all came and took shelter. But we've also had an open household, so we have two lodgers. Now, you need a house of a certain size to do that. But one of the ways we failed as a church is to actually take on board a kind of 1950s nuclear family model of what family means. And we've forgotten that the primary metaphor for believers, the, the main language that Paul uses in his letters is brothers and sisters. And in Matthew 12, Jesus says, who are my mother, my brother, and my sisters? And he looks around, those who do the will of God in the kingdom. And part, I think, of what the challenge for us is, the challenge for me is, if I want to be honest to the teaching of Jesus about marriage, is my family and my household open to receive a single person, maybe a gay single person, so that we can be family for that person? So we can make that a viable way of living. We can provide friendship and support. One of the great victims, I think, of our sexualized culture is the collapse of non-sexual friendships, particularly amongst men. And one of, our, one of the callings that we have is to model friendship and love in non-sexual relationships. Sorry, that was a slightly long answer. <laughs> but it was a, quite a challenging question. <laughs> I think you've stunned them. No, oh, no oh, I haven't. Here, here we, we go. go. Chris? There we go. We'll go. Yeah. Hi. Um, 95% of the church is comprised of heterosexuals. We don't deal with heterosexual sin. Say, sorry, say that again? Said we're not dealing with heterosexual sin. Uh, uh, I agree. And, and so until we get, get uh, our big boy boots on and start addressing that all sex outside of yeah. marriage yeah. Is, is the problem, yeah. then it makes the homosexual community feel like that we are picking on them. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's just a, a uh, yeah. well, I'll just say it, a, a middle class revulsion to male sex. I, I think, and that's where actually, I think that um, the comment I read from E.P. Sanders is actually quite helpful. So one of the things he points out is, is, is he has this, he's looking at Paul's, what you might call a vice list in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Let me just uh, turn to that. Um, so this is, this, is, this is what Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Uh, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor... Now, there's two contended words, arsenokoitais and malakoi, and there's, there's a debate about the translation there. Um, but it, the best translation is, is neither um, the effeminate or men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanders, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and Sanders says, well, what's really striking there is that Paul's mention of same-sex sex is just one on a long list. <laughs> so, yeah, that matters. And, yeah, we're really clear what Paul teaches about that. But, hey, what about the other stuff? Why does the, why does the church pick that one out and make a big deal of it and not deal with the other stuff? Now, uh, oh, we've got the text up there. Thank you. Um, now, at one level, I understand that point. In fact, in the Church of England, I'm not aware of anyone campaigning that swindlers should be accepted and applauded in the church. You know, it's not, there's not much debate about that, you know. We shouldn't say theft doesn't matter. There's no private member's motion at Synod saying theft is okay, whereas there is a private member's motion saying we need to change our doctrine of marriage. So that's why we're having a debate about this at the moment. But actually, I think he makes a really good point. 
We, we, we ought to be talking about all of this stuff. Um, how, do we, how, do we, how do we handle our money? Uh, how, do, how do we care for the poor? How do we engage with social issues? Now, as it happens, I think that evangelicals, I don't want to be, I don't want to be complacent. I think that we do as a church, as evangelicals particularly, we do actually address a lot of these issues. To my knowledge, it's only evangelical churches which teach about giving regularly. And that's why in evangelical churches, people give more. Uh, you know, and I, I've preached on, on giving, and, and you go to Psalm 24, and it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Somebody said, made a comment on Facebook. I put a picture up because I'd done some gardening, and they said, whoa, that's a big house you own. I said, it's not my house. It's God's house. He's lent it to me, and I'm to, I'm to look after it and use it for the kingdom. It doesn't belong to me. When I die, I'm not going to take it with me. You know, you can't take any of it with you. And there is something for us to do. I think we are doing it. Maybe we need to do it more in talking about those other difficult issues, about honesty in the workplace, uh, personal integrity, how we handle our money. Do, are we open to others? Do we welcome people? I mean, one of the weird things in, for evangelicals is very often we have our own kind of codes and our own kind of culture in the church, which means when we come in and we join and we love to be welcomed, we actually quietly culturally close the door behind us so that people who are different from us actually don't feel the welcome that we felt, which is ironic. So, yeah, we've, we've, got, a, we've got things to, to set, sort of set um, right in our own house. I think we are doing some of that, but you're right. We can't just single this issue out on its own. We've got to be doing, cause we've got to be doing all those things, looking at all those things on Paul's list. Lady in the third well, row. I'll go for Jan and then Andre. By the way, I, I can tell you're all Anglicans. The first two rows are empty, by the way. It's good, you know. Uh, yeah, hi. Mine's not really a question more. I um, counsel young people, and this is an issue that comes up a lot. And yeah. It is more sort of picking up on what you're saying. If we're to do this stuff well, and yeah. if we are to, um, it's about forming relationships with people. So yes, these people are broken. Yeah. They're not broken in their own heads. Mm. There's a brokenness in spirit for me and mm. my sin. There's a brokenness in spirit for anybody. Mm. But because we're pointing the finger and saying, because the mm. Bible points and says this is sin, then yeah. it's condemning their very personhood. Yeah, yeah. And I, I find that so hard to sit with. Because obviously, as a counselor, I can't say, oh, well, actually, let me tell you what God says about that. Oh, for sure. It's about the relationship that we're building and me trusting that the Holy yeah. Spirit will yeah. show them something more beautiful, show them Jesus, um, and they will be wowed by him to yeah. the point that the things, you know, that last point you said, sex is not important, to the point that that can actually be something that they see as, it's not all about this. Mm. It's not what the world is pointing mm. to. Mm. So this is not a question. It's just a ramble. No, no, that's <laughs> but it's picking no, up on how no, difficult what, I what, find what, this. I agree. Now, what was really interesting was on that, when I was on that car journey with my daughter, she said, okay, let's have a talk about sex. So I said, okay, fine. And I'd done this presentation of the core bits, the eight things before. So I had it in my head. So I said, okay, fine, let me start. Okay, here's affirmation number one. Sex is a good gift from God. She just said to me, Dad, no one has ever, ever said that to me in the church before, ever. But sex is a good thing. We've always got the message, sex is a bad, dangerous thing, leave it alone. Um, so, and, and I think uh, the, the message that we have is really good news. I agree with you. What we can't afford to do is go around saying, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're no good, you're no good. We've, we've actually got, got to present this as good news. And in the, early, in the first centuries, that's how it was experienced. This is good news for women, particularly. This is good, that, that there is a symmetry. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but, but uh, yeah, here we go, this is good, thank you. It's good news for women. 
This, it's fascinating, isn't it, that secular atheist feminists are now saying, do you know what? The, the historic pattern of marriage was good for women. There's an American sex, sexologist, sociologist researcher called Mark Regnerus, and he's done a sociological study of the impact of the sexual revolution. And guess who comes out as the losers? Answer, women. Now, here's a stereotype, <laughs> and I know it's a stereotype, it's good at that, but here's a stereotype. Women need in relationships security, men quite like sex. And Mark Regnus makes the observation that what happened in the sexual revolution was that there was this kind of social contract in the past where in traditional marriage, men got the sex they wanted and women got the security they wanted. And what happened in the sexual revolution is that that contract, social contract, broke down. And when everyone was having sex with everybody, guess who was the winner? Answer, the people who wanted sex, which is the men. Guess who was the loser, by and large, the people who wanted security, which is the women. And again, Louise Perry, as an atheist feminist, is agreeing with him. He's an evangelical Christian. And people are beginning to recognize that we're losing out. When you say, actually, as in affective individualism, what matters and what is true is how I feel. And at first we go, hmm, well, that's kind of okay, isn't it? Isn't that a good thing? I mean, our feelings are important. And then a man says, do you know what? I feel I'm a woman, and I'm going to go and use the women's toilets, therefore, and compete in women's sports. It's the women who lose out. And more and more women are speaking up on that. So if you're interested in, in a, a group, who, a sec, two secular groups who are speaking up on this, one is a, a movement called Sex Matters, which is precisely saying my rule number three, we are created sex dimorphic. And that really matters. That really matters. Um, Will Self, who's a cultural commentator, once said, he's a very tall chap, six foot six, he said, in a London street at night, I can walk down and I can the street at night and I can feel safe, and a woman can't. That's not fair. Just because I've got a willy, I'm safe and the woman isn't. And I said, no, it's not. I wanted to say to him, no, Will, it's not that. It's that as a male, you've got 40% more upper body strength. A given reality of creation is that men are stronger than women. Therefore, if we're going to protect those who are vulnerable, we've got to address that difference. And our cultural narrative tries to say at every point, no, men and women are the same as each other. Men and women should be doing the same jobs and the same numbers everywhere. No, they shouldn't, because we are not identical. We're not just merely interchangeable because our bodies matter and because, because our, our sect bodies are different from one another. And I think we've got some really, really good news. I'll tell you what, my experience is I don't know a single young person who thinks the current social situation around sexuality is good news for them. I really don't. Boys feel under terrible pressure to perform. Women, girls feel incredibly vulnerable. And that's why in the tragedy of the transgender thing, and I know this because I've got someone in my family who's gone through this, is that teenage girls look on the internet, they look at the, round, the world around them, and what do they say? To be a woman is a bad thing. You're bound to be raped, you're bound to be assaulted, you're gonna do worse in your job, if you have kids, you're gonna have a parenting penalty. And do you know what some of them say? I don't want to be a woman in that kind of world. I think that's terrible. And I think we've got really good news to counter that cultural narrative. Andrew, you got a microphone. A sort of after-the-fact question, talking to an American minister, a same-sex couple, married couple in their eyes who were worshipping in a, a liberal 
of Church of a yep. historic tradition who had left that, came to his parish because they wanted to find life mm. and something more deep. Uh, so if we're in an imaginary context and you're the minister in that situation with all your biblical thinking and uh, mm. studies of revelations, what does effective pastoral care at maintaining of the teachings of Jesus hypothetically look like for those of us who might be ministers, lay leaders, who will possibly and probably yeah. in the years to come face yeah. Yeah. situations like that? I think it's pretty challenging. I think the first thing, so the situation, did everyone hear the question? So the situation is you've got a couple who are a same-sex married couple who come into your church who, who are, are Christians, but they want to deepen their faith, and they're not satisfied with going, being part of a liberal church because they're not, they're not giving them what they want. Um, I think it's a demanding, it's a pastorally demanding situation. I think the fact that they might come is actually really interesting. And I've heard of a number of couples who've been going to gay-friendly churches, and they get really fed up as gay people because all they hear is people talking about being gay. They said, I, I, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I, I, I want, that's what I want to hear about. And actually, they then move to evangelical churches. Um, I, I think it demands... The key thing it demands of us is pastoral patience because, again, part of... These things touch on the whole question of what does it mean, what does conversion mean? What does it mean to come to faith? Now, on the one hand, it means a radical change. So, you know, we as evangelicals tend to be really hot on conversion, on being born again. You know, I've suddenly changed. Everything's changed in my life. You know, I had a phrase as a teenager where I I tore up magazines that I'd bought because I knew it wasn't helpful for my spiritual life. You know, if you ditch stuff or people are throwing records away, so you signal that radical change. That is true, but it's a radical change which is the beginning of a journey of discipleship. And if you didn't realize that, just read the middle of Luke's gospel. Because the whole of the middle of Luke's gospel, from Luke 9, verse 53, he says, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And he depicts the whole of Jesus' ministry until chapter 19 as a journey. And that's to tell us that being a disciple is about going on a journey with Jesus, and it's about growing into holiness. So yes, it's radical change, but it's also about starting on a journey of change. And therefore, I think in that situation, the first thing it demands of us is patience, to hang around with these folk and help them discover what Jesus is actually calling them to and to face the difficult decisions that that might involve. I think my second observation is that it might be a generational issue. And there's a kind of analogy with what happened when Christian missionaries went to Africa, went to cultures which were polygamous. And at first they said, polygamy is wrong, put away your extra wives. But actually marriage was the only access they had to finance, and so the wives they put away ended up being poor and out of work and out of homes. So then they realized a better, a better thing to do, and this is the, the practice of Anglican churches in many of the African provinces, is to say, when you come to faith polygamous, it's kind of applying Paul's principle in, 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 in um, 1 Corinthians 7. Don't change what you are immediately. If you come with, with, in a polygamous marriage, then recognize it's not God's ideal, recognize that it's not his design for marriage, but recognize also that putting those wives away is actually going to really harm them. So stay with it, but you then say, next generation, you then, they, they grow into the biblical teaching about marriage as monogamy. So that you actually then live with a tension of the transition for, generationally from one situation to another. And that might be an appropriate problem, particularly if you've got a gay couple who adopted children, for example. You, what's it going to do for the kids if you say to them, you must separate? What are they, what's going to happen there? So there's, there's difficult things. I think it demands patience of us, and I think maybe other encounters with non-biblical patterns of marriage might give us a clue. Got time for one more question?
question, Andrew? So, any? You're allowed to say, I think you're completely wrong, by the way. Oh, that's, that's, sorry, David. That's also a possible comment. David, you're going to tell me I'm completely wrong here. Well, that's very tempting, but no, I wasn't. Actually, I, I, I can't honestly say that I think that. No, I, it's been really, really helpful, uh, Ian. Thank you. And uh, part of one of the themes uh, for uh, tonight, you know, is um, sort of what does, what does the Bible say? Um, you know, does it matter? And then there was the kind of, can we live with difference? Yeah. Um, and I just wonder if you could say a wee bit more about that third part, you know, particularly, I think we, we here in the Church of Ireland are seeing what's um, happened already, say, with the Scottish Episcopal yeah. Church, the Church in Wales, yeah. and now seemingly with the Church of England, mm. um, we see contrast um, with the other parts of the world where uh, a much more traditional uh, orthodox understanding is there and um, well and other parts of the church in the united kingdom to be fair uh, that's right exactly it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. very yeah. it's very varied uh, it's very varied so just any wisdom on how do we how do we work with a difference you know what uh, when are we when are we in communion and fellowship yeah, yeah, when yeah. do we separate yeah. how do we think about that just in the next sort of, you know, one and a half minutes or so. Okay, just all right. Deal with that, clear that one up for us. Okay, all right. Now, well, Peter says, uh, in his first letter, he says, um, always be ready to give an account of the hope that was in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. Okay, so if we are to talk to uh, non-believers with gentleness and respect, should we also talk to fellow believers with gentleness and respect? Yes, I think so. But let's also talk with honesty and integrity. And I think there's several questions we can actually usefully ask. So if our church or our congregation or whatever it is, is embarking on a conversation about what do we think of the Bible's teaching, what do we think of the church's doctrine on marriage, it's worth asking a couple of questions. And they're really questions about, not so much about the conversation itself, but about the assumptions behind the conversation. So here's a question I think in the Church of England we might have asked some years ago, which is, how long is this conversation going to go on? Because believe you me, if there is a status quo, which is the same that you have as that we have, which is that the doctrine of the church is that marriage according to the teaching of Jesus is between one man and one woman. Why are we discussing this? What's provoked the question? Is there uncertainty about what Jesus says? Why are we having the conversation? How long is it going to go on for? What's the end goal of the conversation? When do we get to the point in saying, hmm, no, actually there isn't a case for changing the doctrine of the church. Let's draw a line and stop the conversation. It's worth asking that question at the outset because we've been in conversations for 30 years and more, 40 years, 50 years. And of course, the conversation just goes on without end. And in the end, you know, it's, a, it's an attempt to just kind of wear you down. And I think the other question to ask is, is this a thing about we can agree to disagree? Now, there's a technical term here that some people will wheel out, which is, is this one of the adiaphora? You just need to recognize that theologians do their jobs by taking simple ideas, making them sound very complicated, usually by using obscure words from another language. And then when you say, oh, goodness, what's that? They say, oh, I'm a theologian. Let me explain that. And they translate it back into English. So the, the word adiaphora just means things indifferent. 
things that we can agree to disagree on. And Paul talks about this in Romans 14. He says, look, okay, some Christians want to obey food laws. Some think they're free from that. Okay, that's fine. We can live with that difference. Some people think you ought to observe certain feast days. Others think it's not important. We can live with that. That's not what this business is about. The kingdom is about, you know, the spirit and power. That's what matters. So we can live with difference on that. Now, here's the question. Is our, is our understanding of sex and marriage and sexuality, could that ever be a thing indifferent? Something where we say, well, you know, some people say this, some of that doesn't really matter. And the answer is no. And the reason for that is the way that the biblical texts deal with the issue, the teaching of Jesus. The fact that Jesus says these desires of things, including sexual immorality, that come up within you, defile you. That is really serious language. Paul says if you continue these things, you'll be excluded from the kingdom of God. In Romans 1, he picks on same-sex sexual activity as the archetypal Jewish critique of pagan culture because same-sex sex rejects our sex dimorphic bodies, which Paul says are a gift of God in creation. He says if you reject God's creation, you're rejecting God because God is creator. This also comes back to being really good news. I was preaching once in a sermon series looking through the creeds, and I was pre preached on, I believe in God, the, the almighty creator of heaven and earth. And one of my th key things I said is, if God is our creator, we don't need to create ourselves. And a young person came up to me straight up after and said, I'm, that is I'm so pleased you said that. Because our culture says, you are what you make yourself to be on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever it is. But actually, God is our creator. That's really good news, and it frees us from that. That's why these are not things indifferent. They're really at the core. They've been really at the core because they touch on, do you believe we're fallen? Do we need to be saved? I've never met anyone who argues for accepting same-sex marriage who is not also a universalist, who says, well, we, we're all going to end up with God in the new creation anyway. Sin doesn't need redeeming. Therefore, I mean, it's really interesting those two things go together. If you meet someone who, who is not a universalist but believes that we can have same-sex marriage, then let me know, because I've never met one. And that's because this, this understanding of who we are... That, Anthropology is the mirror of theology. What I mean by that is how we understand who we are in God's sight in Scripture is kind of the mirror image of what Scripture says about who God is. We are created in the image of who God is. So therefore we have dignity. But we have fallen, we've turned from him, but God is a savior. So do you see every truth about who we are as humans reflects something reciprocally about who God is. And that's why when we get our understanding of ourselves, our anthropology wrong, that can only happen when we've actually got our theology and our understanding of who God is wrong. So that's why we need to press those questions of assumptions and methods.